You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, we have my favourite guest in the studio. It's Brendan Ptolemy from Heron Todd White to chat about the broader market. It's one of those times in Perth where we're just getting out of the wet, dark days that we all hate and struggle with compared to most parts of the world. And we're into spring selling season. And, and what better way to chat about the opportunities and also reflect on what's been going the last few months than to have Perth's best property commentator come and join me. So thanks very much for joining me, Brendo. Trent, thanks for having me in. Really appreciate it. I don't really know where to start because it's been a little bit of a strange, manic market in the last four or five months since we last chatted. On one side of the equation, we've had sustained boom level supply pressure being extremely tight. And again, since we chatted in about March, April, I think it was, we've also had demand sustain at around 900 transactions a week, every single week. However, what we haven't seen compared to uh, January to March timeframe, where there was a massive step change in prices, massive boom on pressure on offer and acceptances. So we haven't seen the thousand people a week coming in internationally, putting that extra pressure on prices. So what we've seen is really of the 15% of growth in the last 12 months, Nearly all of it was up till April and then it sort of sat there. And I like to call it the eye of the storm. We had the first rung there of, of craziness where all the indicators were off the Richter scale. It was all happening. You can see it. Very dangerous market to be a part of. And then it's gone quiet. Yeah. On the back end of having lockdowns and COVID scares and those kinds of things, remember our last lockdown was around about the first weekend in July. Mm-hmm. So that would have scared our market. But we have ended up in a period where there's subdued activity and it's really difficult at the moment to determine whether that subdued activity is because of the lack of supply. Or I think there's probably a big factor here in that people saw prices rise really quickly that surprised the hell out of a lot of people. Mm. And the people that were shopping in certain suburbs suddenly realized that they either couldn't afford that suburb or it got out of control really quickly and so they walked away. And so I think what we've done over winter is hit a a reset period where people have stood back and said, oh, hang on, I'll just see whether this market calms down. Often human nature says, I'm a bit smarter than the average person. So I think this will go back again. It went up so quickly, it'll go back again. And I think our message to to everyone listening today is don't be waiting for it to go back again because it's not going back down. Yeah, I agree. And there's a few reasons why we can explain what's happened in the last few months, but also what we expect to happen in the next few months. Firstly, again, I'll reiterate, every single supply side indicator demonstrates we are still in a tornado. We are still in a boom like we've never actually seen before. They're tighter than they were in the boom we call the boom 10 yep. years ago, right? Which is scary. And we're just like in The Wizard of Oz right now where Dorothy steps out and goes, oh, it's it's you know, either storm, we're all quiet here, it's all finished. It hasn't finished. The wind vane is still going nuts. It's still crazy out there. The, the witch is out on her chair screaming around in the, in the wind somewhere, but we can still walk outside and it's a little bit eerie. All the indicators still demonstrate massive boom and the only thing that's come off is that extra pressure on demand despite the fact that demand levels on a transaction per week side have not changed since the massive price growth in January to March. So it says to me that the scariest time of a tornado is actually the back end of it. That's when the real mayhem is and the second those borders open up, that's when we'll see those pressures come again. So my message to everyone is if you were thinking about buying, 
you are, you've had some non-buyer's remorse of going, oh man, it was 150 grand cheaper a year ago. I can't deal with this. I can't accept this. I'm not going to buy. I'm going to wait for it to go down. It ain't going down. Buy now because you will regret it if you wait until the borders open up again. Yeah. And so if we link that into the supply side of the argument, uh, just to statistically, there's only 8,500 properties on the market. And what I'm trying to do here is paint a picture for those people that are out there looking. If you're waiting for the perfect property to present itself now, you're on the wrong track because there's only 8,500 properties. That includes land, established dwellings or single residential housing and apartments. Now, out of those 8,500, and these are REWA-type numbers, you know, if, if you go to realestate.com, it probably looks a bit higher, which is great. But in terms of the average availability out, out there, out of 8,500 properties, 2,500 of those are pretty much apartments either in, in a metro or CBD. They're probably not all apartment products. Some of them are probably villas and those types of products that uh, get classified that way. Not houses. So they're not single residential houses. Go to the other end of the scale and about uh, between 1,500 and 2,000, probably in the middle there, is land. And so we're looking at only around 4,000 to 4,500 single residential dwellings on the market at the moment in the Perth metro area. That is unsustainably low, yep. right? When you've got 900 transactions a week since last September. So now for a year, we've been averaging 900. It was up to about 1,200 back in June last year when the building grants come in with all that extra land, which we won't count. But since September, we can smooth it out to about 900 a week. It doesn't take that many weeks to be replacing this. And when you think about 1,000 people a week not coming into the state from international and domestic borders, of which they need about 550 homes to live or rent in and we have a 40-year vacancy rate low to rent so they're probably not going to be able to rent that easily. Yep. 550 houses needing to be bought or rented against 900 transactions a week that currently aren't putting pressure on that. Yeah. The second that goes on, that's a 50% pressure yep. on top of the current and that's what we saw in January to March. That's yeah. what happens when you put that on. Price growth like 15% in the space of three months. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so, and just to give everyone that perspective about us carrying on about that supply. So, Rima talk about the economists at Rima talk about there being 13,000 properties on the market as being an equilibrium type, right? Balance. So, yep. 12 to 14,000 somewhere, let's call it 13,000. And that's when you can go shopping for a house and, and find something you like or dislike and, and want to fix up or whatever the case might be. Or you've got enough in your suburb that you've targeted to buy in. And it's a fair to market. Actually choose from. Yeah. yeah. And it becomes a fair market where you're, as a buyer, in an equilibrium state to the seller. So you're both relatively desperate to get the transaction done and you can come to a decent number. So just if you're out there going to look for a property or if you're sitting on your hands waiting for things to, to loosen up or prop, uh, prices to go back down, the message is uh, we're in a lull and I'd get out there really quickly at the start of this spring period and, and have a look around if you're motivated and you're, you've got to prove money to buy. It's an opportunity. It is, yeah. It's that second opportunity, I guess. The real opportunity were those who picked up and had a couple of kahunas a year and a half ago yep. whilst COVID was happening or just before COVID, before you even started to see any real strong uh, indicators in Perth that most people would have been on a consensus with. But this is the second opportunity now. And those who haven't bought should count themselves lucky yep. because uh, the only reason that we have an artificial styling of demand is because of those borders. Yeah, we have had some population growth. I think the year-to-date March quarter showed uh, about sixteen or 1,700 people coming in. They're, they're quite positive numbers given that the borders are closed. But 
perspective on this is that at the same time, where Western Australia had a, a total number of people coming into the state of about 2,000 to 3,000 people, at that same time, Queensland had 12,000 people migrate from New South Wales and Victoria to the north and move into Queensland. So I know we like to sit back and say, you know, we're a, a destination place for, for people to come and work and live and, and our lifestyle opportunity is really good. The fact is, is when they think about moving on from the east coast, they don't leave the east coast, they move north. So they're looking for sunshine and better lifestyle in, in Queensland. And obviously, it's a big state with lots of opportunities for everyone as well. The key, I think, here is um, hopefully for government and large corporations to get on the front foot and be out there enticing people to cross the border and come across the Nullarbor or indeed from overseas. We need uh, Chamber of Commerce and Industry are saying 30 to 40,000 workers in our marketplace. And my barometer at the moment is unskilled labour it is run dry. So I, we're talking to people that cleaners is a really good one. People that have cleaning businesses cannot get staff for love or money because they've got other job opportunities where they can earn more. Mm. And so that means we're pretty much at 100% employment. We are. And, and I could, you know, not only the construction industry that affects us directly in property, but across every other professional industry, it is really tight. We're essentially cannibalizing each other's industries, poaching people off each other. That's even down to the legal fraternity, for example. What happens then? Wage growth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what happens when we have wage growth? Well, that's the other side of demand, not just population in terms of the amount of people, but the amount that people can spend, right? Yep. And whilst interest rates continue to stay low for the next few years, that will be a constant and a constant at a really tight level. If we continue to have wage growth and demand growth and we continue to see this supply levels where people are holding off selling because they know there's growth ahead, well, all that does is spell finally an opportunity for our Perth market to see something like a sustained growth of what we have seen in the East Coast for a few years. Before we move on from houses, because you bring up the East Coast, and I think it's a really good piece of perspective for everyone that's thinking about buying to, to take a look at. Our market has grown probably on average by about 20%. So easy 10% in, in most good suburbs and, and very much trending towards 20% in desirable suburbs uh, all around Perth, north, south, east, west. So in that same period of time, Sydney market has grown 30-odd percent. We're talking multi-million dollar properties uh, going up as at right down to their bottom end of the market range. So they've had exponential growth while we've had okay growth. Isn't that strange? Yeah, it is really strange. When they're coming off already prices that people were saying were massive bubbles that were ready to pop yep. and they've had lockdowns. Yep. Does that say more about their market or about our market? Part of it is that we've been shunned by the East Coast. So there's a whole buyer sector as in investors from the East Coast who aren't interested in WA at this point in time. So again, they've kind of beat the rush messages there because when the music stops or the we get through into the other side of the tornado, the East Coast guys who've got a whole lot of equity and cheap money to borrow from the banks are going to come looking for another place to buy. That's going to be WA. We're going to be still one of the most affordable capital cities in Australia. We're only still running neck and neck with South Australia or Adelaide, sorry, at this point in time. Hobart, I think, is still beating us. It's, it's slightly embarrassing in our competitive sand grape and nature, but that means that we're still looking really affordable for other people to come and have a crack at our market. So again, as locals, I'd be getting in as, as soon as you can. And probably my other question to you, Trent, is that nervousness about commitment, that consumer sentiment part of each individual's decision-making process, will I jump in now? Because we've seen the historic lows of property, and I think that's created the hesitancy of people, whichever end of the market, whether you're at the bottom or the top, of saying, look, 
I can see that suburb went up by 20%. It's overvalued now. Better mm. not buy it's in a there. self-defeating prophecy. So, Whereas the guys on the East Coast have been patting each other on the back for five years going, yeah, yeah. this can't stop. We're on the other side going, well, this will stop. Yeah. It, it, it can't, we, we don't deserve value growth. But yeah. the reality of property is it's maths. Yep. It's a, it's economics. It doesn't, it doesn't really care whether it's Sydney or Melbourne or Perth or Dubai or London or somewhere in the back of Southeast Asia. It doesn't matter, right? Property is simply another asset yep. and the value of it is derived by demand and supply and the replacement value of that asset, right? Yep. Do you want to segue into the replacement value of assets and talk about where build prices have gone recently? Yeah, let's do that while we're still looking at single resi. Yeah. yeah. I'll quote your stat that you gave me the other day. 40% increase in construction costs in the last two years. Mm. So That's what amazing. Was, what was $200,000 is now about two seventy. Yep. Two eighty something like that. What was five hundred is seven hundred. What was six hundred is eight hundred and something. Yep. It is just ridiculous. Yeah, and it's quite amazing. When it comes to putting a developer's hat on, it tells a really strong story about where supply is going to continue to go. Because for a developer to add supply to the market, which the market needs, a developer needs to be able to demonstrate profit. Yep. If a developer can't demonstrate profit because the tradies have just sucked all that profit out of it based on the price they bought the land for and the price they can sell the units for at the end they won't add the supply they'll sit on it they'll sell it back to the market and therefore when supply isn't increased prices have to go up that's the replacement value of the properties what eventually happens is it does work out and eventually developers see arbitrage again they see profit again and they do end up adding supply but not until prices go up prices are forced to go up as long as there is sustained demand yeah so the, the developer still needs to make that margin to be committed to the project and there's a whole lot of structural issues with our system in terms of making it difficult for developers to actually produce product i get a little bit tense around talking about some of these subjects in terms of trying to remain independent as as us valuers are but we do have to call out that there's a fundamental problem with the system and process of developers being able to get product to market in good locations and unfortunately, we have a situation where people that live in good locations in Perth Metro, doesn't matter again whether it's north, south, east or west, that they don't want density brought to their existing suburbs. And I, I think it's really important that we stand back from that as a, as a city and, and actually understand that that's where we need to move here to create supply mm-hmm. and that we need to be able to free up some of that red tape so that developers can bring that supply to the marketplace. Give everyone a, an opportunity to live in a great location. Exactly right. You can't fix a supply problem by adding another house and land suburb on the fringes because you can't force people to live 40Ks from the city. They won't do it. They'll continue to just push prices up in the inner suburbs. And this is where I'm seeing a massive opportunity for everyone listening is that uh, whilst we have seen a big amount of supply in the last year push through onto the fringes, nearly none of that has gone into the inner city suburbs and most of the demand stays within the inner city suburbs. It's becoming really chronic, the undersupply in that area. And there's only one way prices can go as long as people can afford it. And if we make the same money in Perth as we do in Sydney, we pay the same interest rates as they do in Sydney, and those interest rates stay relatively affordable for the next few years. There is no reason because Sydney is no better than Perth. The numbers are just the same. They get treated the same way. Uh, There's no reason why you don't see sustained manic growth in the inner city suburbs where there is location-based undersupply for quite some time. What you're referring to there is red tape. And as long as there is red tape making our lives hard as developers, there will be an undersupply. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And it's just disappointing that we, uh, through the downturn, haven't been able to bring enough supply into those uh, those locations mm. to free that up or, or keep price control, as in end price control for the average consumer to buy into those good locations. Yeah. Well, let's segue into apartments because we talk about infill, we talk about price rises, 
businesses and we talk about supply being pulled back from what we expected to be able to receive. And the theme there on apartments is that CoreLogic has come out only in the last couple of weeks saying that up to half of all apartment developments that are scheduled for construction in Perth in the next year or so have been pulled off for the market have been pulled back all their pre-sales are uh, now on ice and developments that have not hit have not broken ground yet half of those will not Far be coming around. to market a perfect example is one development that i thought was a really really smart development it looked amazing uh, on leonora street in como called ripple by developer modus uh, we've been told that that one uh, whilst it, and again it was priced quite competitively uh, that one's been put on ice for two things to happen. One, for the building industry and the apartment space to settle down. We've seen Pindan and Jackson fall over. It's actually really, really risky to be in a space where it's possible your builder will fall over. So who's yep. the next one that's going to go? It's been yeah. a roll of the dice. But also, in the expectation that we will have an, a still an undersupply of new property go through Perth, take the opportunity to wait a year for prices to rise so that the rest of their pre-sales can be at a higher price to make up for the expected increased in costs. Yep. So they've got some profitability there. Yeah, um, yeah. That's one example of a really great development in a great area with beautiful river views of a number that are starting to happen. And what we're actually starting to see now are a few developers who are just about to start building, get their last price contract signed up, ready to go, get hit with... 15, 20% costs higher than what they expected yep. they were going to be uh, only a few months ago. And now going, well, look, we're either going to make no profit or we don't do the development or we go back to our pre-buyers, yep. uh, off-the-plan buyers and ask them for an extra 15, 20 grand a pop. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen that before, Brendo? No. Well, uh, we first heard that type of story coming out of our Gold Coast office. Obviously, a lot of high-density development over there. Slightly different scenario in that they were selling out those complexes as pre-sales. And then the developers were going back and doing their costs, working out there was some cost rise there. But they also understood that the markets moved so much between when they started marketing and finished marketing and the demand was so good that they are now able to go back to their customers and say, you know what, we're tearing up the contract design, we're repricing our product, and if you'd still like to buy in this complex, here's the new value level. So they're maintaining their profit margin, probably copying some cost increase in construction. Reputation cost as well. And essentially going back and repricing the whole complex before they start building. It's pretty crazy, and it's happened in two cases. You could say it's in bad faith, but at the same time, you could also say it's the only way this development will get up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And and in those locations, my understanding is that they still require supply. So uh, it's not such a bad thing that that's still bringing supply to the marketplace. What you've alluded to there is that we're not the only state in a situation where build prices are going up in such a crazy way. So is that what we're seeing on the East Coast? Are we seeing just similar numbers or because... Because it wasn't coming off such a low base, it's not as high, yeah. but it's still some significant increases. Yeah, absolutely. Again, pressure on construction costs in all of those locations. And then it's not obviously been helped by things like lockdowns and COVID crisis and those other things that you're seeing through that marketplace. Queensland in particular has been an attraction for lifestyle property buyers from the southern states. And it's not dissimilar to our regional market here or the regional market all across Australia where people have started looking for the other place to live, move out of the city and buy that lifestyle property because I can work from there a couple of days a week, those kinds of things. So uh, that's certainly happening in Queensland and driving those prices up too. I'd just like to highlight probably something that we, we take for granted. And if we talk about that case example of the modus, the development, 
what type of time frame would that developer have spent getting that development to that stage? We're talking design, planning, approval, process, uh, QS. Up, up to 18 months. Yeah. So you, you're, they're throwing 18 months to two years of investment down the drain by just having not been able to get it up, uh, mm. get the construction completed towards the end. Yeah. The issue it's is a big they're, investment, they're staring it? down a barrel and looking at it going, we're going to get the pre-sales we expected but we're not going to get the finance we need because yep. construction price is going to be that much higher and therefore we would have had we're going to sell out all of our apartments with nowhere to go to actually have increased revenue in any way yep so we have no upside benefit but we have only downside and we can't even get it financed because the bank needs a certain amount of revenue to have been pre-sold if we can't achieve that because we've undersold these based on the cost of where things have moved in the last few months well then we'd never have a project let alone yep. profit yeah, and so the, I think the really important lesson for our marketplace there too, depending on who's listening, but it, you can't magic up this supply overnight. It takes a couple of years to get a development planned and, and ready to be actually constructed. Then you've got to build it. And so you can't wait in the downturn to say, uh, as say a local council, I don't like that development. I need you to tweak the balconies or the, the finishes or redesign it for me. You can't magic up that supply when suddenly you require it two or three years down the track. You need to have been building it and not holding it back for the last couple of years. And the reason it's been held back is because we've been in such a self-defeating space. Investors have lost a lot of equity. Developers who have got the multi-millions of dollars have lost a lot of cash flow. They haven't been making the profit on the projects that they started in 2015. So they've lost a lot of that cash flow ready to move again on the next project. And the demand wasn't there for pre-sales on the projects in the 2017, 2018 space, especially when you think about that foreign investor tax coming in only a couple of years ago. That really put a dampener on pre-sales as well. It's been getting kicked in the nuts for a few years now where we've now, we're not prepared for the demand that is going to be coming in. But you could also say at the same time, there's still some level of reticence and hesitance by West Australians compared to the East Coast and the rest of the, and also around the world to buy off the plan too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that, that just to assist in making it harder to do that high density development throughout Perth Metro. Yeah. Mm. Let's look forward mm. on the resi space in Perth. We've had a really good discussion looking back as to where we're at and why we are where we're at. We've said that we expect a lot of growth over the next year or so, especially the second the borders start to open up. It will be a crazy time again. It wasn't a fun time for me. In January to March this year, I like to understand my numbers and really have confidence in them. It was out of control. And I expect the same thing to happen probably January, February next year when those borders start opening up again. Yeah, yeah. Where would you like to be investing now if their opportunity was there? Well, what product type would it be? Yep. And what sort of area in Perth would it be? Well, I'd start with principal place of residence in terms of tax-free money that you get out of property growth and underpinning your own family wealth. And so if you had been thinking about upgrading to a neighbouring suburb or a different type of lifestyle or a bigger home in the same suburb, I'd be taking that action now and getting out there. You have to remember that you're going to achieve hopefully a really good price for your property because it's gone up but obviously the the commensurate price increases on the the neighboring suburb but don't get scared by that because you have to embrace that if you're going to jump off the cliff and make this decision so number one i'm still fundamentally you're going to make tax-free money out of your principal place of residence I, i still like that concept live in the best place that you can afford from there I'm still relatively conservative trend. I like that kind of low risk, small development, in particular for first and second time developers, get into something that you can handle and is relatively straightforward in terms of 
you are taking on a large amount of decision making. And so the less decisions you can make through your first process, the better. So if it is a duplex block development with relatively straightforward process of retain and build, then I'd get in there. Beyond that, I would start maybe looking at some of the syndicated stuff just because you can probably put a smaller amount of money into a larger development, but you would obviously want to be putting that into a decent developer with a really good builder attached to it or construction contract. A strong builder. Yeah. yeah. In, a, in a blue chip area. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when we're talking about that, we absolutely want to be in a blue chip location, near city, lifestyle opportunities outside the front door of the complex. Yeah. A lot of people will come back with a question that follows up that answer of yours being, well, look, build costs have gone crazy. We're sort of taking a bit of a punt that the sales revenues will catch up over the time of the construction and construction will take longer than we expect. What about just selling land, cutting up a corner block? What's the data there on how land has been going since all those build cost increases have come in? Has it had a negative pressure on land value because of the the rise in build costs or are things just ticking along with the demand in the market? Yeah, well, we have seen uh, in first home buyer suburbs, the land tick along uh, relatively nicely. I would think the developers would be relatively happy with the price increases that they got through that period, in particular coming off a really low base and selling out all of their excess stock and all of their asterisked blocks, the ones that had have issues with them. They've now got a clean slate to develop further and they have the tractors turned on and, and are churning out more supply. So that would suggest that they're pretty happy with that pricing. The benefit we have in our marketplace for developers and for builders is that established dwelling values went up at the same time that price or cost of those two products went up. So as the price of land went up and the cost of construction went up, established dwelling values were increasing because of demand and and the supply pressure there. So whether that can continue is another question. So when we talk about there being 10 or 20% value growth in established dwellings in Perth, is there another 10 or 20% there in the outer suburbs that underpins the fact that the developer would like the land value to continue to increase and the builder would like the construction cost to increase? Mm. I'd hazard a guess that that land side has to stagnate at some point in time because value growth is going to be more focused on like premium locations essentially. Yeah, I agree. And, and it all comes again down to demand and supply where there is a one-for-one supply for every piece of demand on new land, which is the fundamental ideology of house and land areas. The only way that values can grow is when replacement cost increases, where borrowing costs decrease, or when wages grow. That's yep. the only way because supply is always equal to demand yep. until it becomes an established suburb, right? Yep. So you can't, you wouldn't expect to be seeing ridiculous price increases where you can make money through a build, for example, in yep. a house and land package area. However, pulled into the first 20, 25 Ks of the city where supply is restrained and demand is constant, then the price is whatever demand will pay for it. Yeah. As long as they can afford it. Yep. Right. So it's about understanding whether there is a positive or negative arbitrage on building. And if, the, if you want to lose money by building, then sell the land. And what you're saying is, well, there is still sustained demand, especially maybe not the levels of nine months ago, but certainly a lot better than there were a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. So in good locations near city, so talk within that 15 or 20K ring of Perth CBD, 
most of that land that was being cut up that is usable and, and you can put a, a standard kind of single or two-story dwelling on it. The established dwellings in those locations have taken off in terms of value. So has the land value and construction costs are just still in that zone where if you buy that block of land and build a house that is similar to everything else around it, a feasible house on that lot, then you end up at a value that's pretty much similar to established dwellings in those locations. What people need to be careful of there is to continue to do your feasibility on that. If you're jumping in there to buy a development site in those locations, well and good, you're going to pay probably handsome money for it. But you just need to be careful that the end product you're getting to, not just the land, but even if you are intending on selling the land, you need to make sure that the person buying that land can feasibly build a house on there for a cost of land plus construction cost that equals something that's within the established dwelling values within that locality. So that's a, mm. a good feasibility for people to do. I'm struggling with that because I don't see it often adding up. Yep. But that is generally not the financial decision that owner-occupiers are making. You're yep. advising they should, but they're just not. A great example, just generally, a couple of years ago, the carrot to selling to a developer like myself, for example, would have been, look, I can pay a bit more than the owner-occupier will want to. Yep. All right. And that's what the selling agent will be telling the seller off-market. Look, this guy can pay a bit more. He's a developer. Yep. Things have changed. In the last six, seven months, it's become very obvious that the owner-occupier is willing to pay way more than what we could ever pay as a yep. developer right now. And that's clearly not based on any financial analysis at all, but simply FOMO and demand and supply of somewhere for them to live in absence of any other properties around or any rentals around. Yeah, absolutely. And cheap money. That's the other really big factor there. One of the strangest experiences I ever had buying my first home is you're waiting for someone to tell you that you can't afford it. But when you go to the bank, they just tell you that you're okay. And and you then go shopping at the value level that you think is okay. You're making all those kind of big boy or big girl decisions by yourself without the bank saying, no, no, you can't actually afford any of that. You've got to work all those things out yourself. And so I would encourage people just to make sure that they are doing their cash flows on what their repayments are. Don't do them on the current interest rate that you're paying. Do them on interest rates that are higher. The bank will be doing that in the background, but they don't really talk to you about the, the way they model that to make sure that you within yourself are making those affordability decisions. So yeah, don't, don't be paying too much or over the odds for something that might not be sustainable into the future. And that's going to be the hard thing for people who have been looking for the last year and a half because in their mind, everything's over the odds right now. Yep. But what we're saying is that, yes, it is over the odds compared to a year and a half ago, but compared to where things are moving, this is the best chance you're going to get. So you yep. either get in or just be okay with the fact that you're not in. Yeah. You'll probably miss the whole next cycle. Yeah, and then if you're going to do that, start reading the press from Sydney and Melbourne about affordability because they're, they're now starting to have a conversation about the fact that there's a generation of people that can't afford to buy a house. Mm. We're, we're a long, long way away from having that conversation. We're super affordable for most people at, still in, in WA and in Perth in particular. And so then I'd get back to that argument about you've actually just got to take that big, deep breath and dive into the market if you want to be in there longer term. I think the best way to explain that is the the affordability index. What people are spending as a percentage of their income on their housing. Now, if we all agree that Sydney has become unaffordable for a generation, the number that you look at there is they're spending about 45% of their income on their housing, yep. their mortgage. In Perth, we're the second most affordable. We spend about 23, 24%. Yep. And, and our incomes are pretty much the same. We make a little bit more ironically, than yep. Sydney people. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if you look at that index on its own about whether a market has reached a cap, not based on any other factor of demand and supply or anything, but just based on affordability, 
that will be the one. The second we start getting in Perth into the 40s yep. on our percentage, which it did get to before back in the boom, then you start going, yeah, we can't, no one could afford to pay more than this. Therefore, the inherent value can't get much higher and there's only downside risk. Yeah. So there's a long way to go between that. Yeah. And the other thing that uh, I was just looking through some suburb statistics in terms of growth, and we're talking rewa average median house price growth in some suburbs. But what it showed me was we need to be really careful about what those base prices were because some of those base prices are probably the, the cheapest that suburb will ever be. And it's really easy to pick on the western suburbs, but a reasonably sized block of land through Dalkeith, Nedlands, Cottesloe was $1.5 million. That is now worth 2 to $2.5 million. So I'd argue that it's not going to be $1.5 million ever, ever again. again. Yeah. Brennan Ptolemy from Herod Tom White. Thanks so much for coming in, mate. This has been a really good chat. Uh, it's probably my favorite one, actually, because we're really starting to get down into the detail of that higher level conversation on why things are happening. Yep. So I hope everyone's following along with this, understanding it, and, and everyone's looking forward to the next time we catch up about the Perth area. Yeah, thanks, Trent. And I really hope that we've uh, given some people information that they can use to go and make some decisions. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!